I'll be reading from the New King James Version, 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 6, if you'd like to follow. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he has suffered in the flesh, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to the God and the Spirit. Do you remember when you first realized that your family is not normal? Here's what I mean. For many of us, there's a point in time when we look around at our family and we realize this is, this is not normal. And it usually happens because we're exposed to something different. You see, you grow up in a family and you only experience that family for so many years of your life, so you assume it's normal. And then somewhere along the way, you find out that it's not. I can remember when I, maybe not when I first realized my family wasn't normal, but I can remember a specific occasion when I realized my family wasn't normal. Uh, it, it involved my grandmother, and she is going to watch this in just a little bit, so I'm going to say this. I love you, Nan. Real quick, I want to say that before I get started. But we were at a funeral of her sister, whom she dearly loved. My, my grandmother is, is, is very passionate in her love for people. She cares deeply about people, and, and she, she loves earnestly. And so she had this practice that at a funeral, she would take a picture of the body of her loved one in the casket. I thought that was weird, but apparently that has a long tradition to it. But here's where I did realize that my family was a little bit abnormal. My grandmother asked that me and my brother take a picture standing next to the casket with her sister. And I remember standing there, and I nudged my brother, and I said, hey, do we smile? <laughs> Think about it for a moment. I, I love my Nan. She is a wonderful, that's what I call her Nan. I love my Nan. She's a wonderful grandmother. She'll actually possibly be here in a few weeks, uh, so don't pick on her about that. <laughs> but I remember that day thinking, this is not normal. But you know what? There also comes a time in your life when you realize you're not normal. And for me, that happened very early on, but one specific occasion that I can recall was in eighth grade. In eighth grade, I went to a private Christian school affiliated with the Churches of Christ. I went to it from kindergarten through high school, then I went to Harding. So my whole life, I went to, to school with other, in a, an environment that was Christian-based and that had a, a, a doctrinal stance affiliated with Churches of Christ. And so in eighth grade, I'm at school, and, and, and our school was small enough that we had seventh through twelfth grade on the same campus. 
And so we did everything together, 7th through 12th grade. In 8th grade, our student government decided to host not only a homecoming, but what they called a homegoing. Now, the homegoing happened in the winter during basketball season, and it was supposed to be the opposite of homecoming, in that instead of electing girls to a homecoming court, you elected guys to a homegoing court. Well, it just so happened that in eighth grade, I was nominated for our class to be the representative of eighth grade on the homegoing court. And I'm sitting there thinking, all right now, you know, I must be gaining some level of popularity here. I must be gaining some, some level of attention here, like those girls who get elected to homecoming. And so I was a little bit excited about this. I even had to pick some young female to be my escort during the homegoing proceedings. And so here I am in, on the basketball court, standing out in front of the whole student body, representing the eighth grade class, and then I start paying attention to the other guys that are nominated. And I quickly realized that, hey, all the other classes nominated like the dorkiest person in their class. And then it dawned on me. Wait a second. This doesn't add up. And I realized I'm not normal. You see, we all have these moments that at some point in time you're going to realize you're not normal, that you don't do things the way everybody else does it. Now here's the bigger question. Do you remember the time when you realized that as a Christian, you were not normal in this world? I can remember one event that stands out to me. It happened when I was in high school. And I went to uh, a gathering with several of my friends from church. And when I arrived at the house that we were hanging out in, they were all drinking. And I left. And it was then that I realized I'm among people who are self self-professing Christians, and I'm not normal by their standards. But you know what? There's also occasions when you realize you're more normal than you should be. In that same time period, I went with a group of friends from school to a, to a movie, and we were, all, we were all believers. Most of us were members of the Churches of Christ, but a couple of our friends who, who were Christians in the broadest sense of the terminology went to some other denomination, but were practicing morality on the same level that we were, went to the movies with us. And I remember the movie was filled with horrible language. And one of our friends who, who was not a member of the Church of Christ, he got up and left, and we thought he just needed to go, go to the restroom or needed to get some drink or something like that. He never came back. After the movie was over, we found out that he left because he was so offended by the language. And I thought to myself, why didn't I get up? I was more normal than I should have been. You see, we're in this study of 1 Peter, and it's got this theme running throughout the whole book about being strange. And the thing is, we're all strange to some degree. We all are abnormal in some capacity. But what makes us abnormal? What makes a Christian abnormal is the real question. And if you look here in 1 Peter, look in chapter 4, you'll see that Peter emphasizes the need for us to appear strange to the world, particularly down at verse 4, where he says that they, that they being the Gentiles, which is terminology used of pagans, of unbelievers, 
and so on in the New Testament, the world in essence, they think it's strange or they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. In other words, Peter's saying that the world should think it's strange, that it's abnormal, that it's weird that you don't do the things that they do. That's what Peter's saying. But are we strange? See, before behavior can change, before behavior can become abnormal and strange, we have to change something else first. Do you remember what Jesus said about good and bad fruit back in Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45? He said this, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. And then he goes on to say that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What Jesus is saying is that the fruit we bear, whether it be our external actions or our behaviors or our conduct, it all originates within us, in our heart. Now, in the first century, the heart was the center of one's emotions and one's thoughts. And so what Jesus is saying is is that our external behavior is going to be influenced by our internal thoughts. You see, in order to change behavior, we first have to change our way of thinking. And according to 1 Peter chapter 4, our strangeness to the world has everything to do with how we think. Go back to verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, after appealing to Jesus' suffering in chapter 3, he says that since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter says that we are to think like Christ, to have the same mind as Christ. And he's calling on us to equip ourselves with a strange new way of thinking a way of thinking that is consistent with the way Jesus thought. And so this morning, as we continue our study of of this strange theme in the book of 1 Peter, I want to focus in on these first six verses of of 1 Peter chapter 4 and notice that we're called to have a strange way of thinking. But what does that strange way of thinking entail? Or to ask it another way, how is the Christian's way of thinking strange. I think there's three main things to notice in this passage. Number one, when it comes to our strange way of thinking, it's strange because it believes life is theocentric rather than egocentric. Now, I'm using big words to make myself sound a little bit smarter today, but let me explain what I'm talking about here. To be theocentric means that God is the center of life, that the focus of your life is God and His will. To be egocentric is to put yourself at the center of your life, for your life to revolve around you and to be centered and focused on you, the individual. And what we see here as we read 1 Peter chapter 4 is that Peter is saying that this strange way of thinking between believers and unbelievers is that believers are going to operate theocentrically And unbelievers are going to operate egocentrically. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2. 
after calling on Christians to arm themselves, to equip themselves with Christ's way of thinking, Peter makes a point to indicate that, they, that, that we are to no longer live for human passions, but instead to live for the will of God. You can see that there at the end of verse 2. In other words, Peter is saying that the world operates for human passions. The world is focused on fulfilling its own desires. It's very egocentric because what it pursues is what it wants. And, and so the world operates with the intent of fulfilling its own desires, and he identifies some of those desires, if you look at verse 3, some of those categories of sins that are, that are mentioned there in verse 3 sensuality and lusts and sexual immorality and drunkenness and so on. And it's all of these items that ultimately lack self-control. And, and what Paul is saying is that an e, a theocentric life, I'm sorry, an egocentric life, a life centered on the self, pursues its own will and its own passions and its own desires. And Peter says that's not who you are. That's not who a Christian is. A Christian is not someone who... who revolves their life around themselves. Instead, a Christian is one who is theocentric, who is living for the will of God. And living for the will of God means rejecting your own will. Do you remember what Jesus said? If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and follow me. Deny being the center of your own world. Refuse to operate egocentrically. And follow me. Make me the direction of your life. Make me the centerpiece of your life. Operate theocentrically. And think about the will of God for a moment. That phrase that appears here in, in, in chapter 4 and verse 2 really stands out to me. Because I started thinking, I wonder how many times in Scripture we're told what the will of God is. Now here's what I found fascinating. You'll find many references to the existence of God's will in Scripture. You'll find many references to the fact that God accepts those who do His will, but there's only three times in all of the New Testament where there's the phrase, this is the will of God, and then an explanation. Three times. Two of those appear in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 and 6, we're told... 3 through 6, we're told that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. So one thing we know that is the will of God is purity. We know that that, that uh, self-control emanating in, our, in, in the control of our own bodies and in our own pleasures, that, that is the will of God, that we will control ourselves in that vein. 1 Thessalonians has a second statement about the will of God. It appears in chapter 5 and, and includes some of the, the shortest statements in all Scripture. It's in verse 16 through 18 where Paul will say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the second time that the phrase, this is the will of God, appears, it talks about our recognition of, of, of God, our giving thanks to God, our communication with God, our acknowledgement of God, our praise of God. That's very selfless in and of itself. The third time the statement, this is the will of God, appears is actually in 1 Peter. It's in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. 
And it's in, I'm sorry, it's in chapter 2 of verse Peter, and it's in verse 15, where he says, This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So the will of God in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 is that we do good, that we shun evil, essentially, that we reject wrong, that we do good, that there is an active participation in the things that are right. So if you want to sum up the will of God, you can to some degree do it by saying it's the control of your body. It's communication and praise and worship and glory of God. And it's doing what is right. Now, I know you could nuance that a whole bunch and reference a whole lot of other scriptures that mention God's will, but these are the three occasions that I'm aware of where the phrase, this is the will of God, appears. And when you consider all of them, they're all theocentric, not egocentric. They're all about God and not about us. You see, the strange way of thinking we're to have is theocentric, God-centered, not self-centered. But the world today, much like the world of the first century, operates egocentrically. Many people today believe that the world revolves around them. And why not? Burger King tells you to have it your way. Sprite tells you to obey your thirst. Men's Warehouse claims that you're going to like the way you look. The Oriel says that, that it's, you're worth it. Then along comes Visa claiming it's everywhere you want to be. Verizon then asks, can you hear me now? And all the while, the United States Army encourages you to be all you can be. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to, to hate on any of these companies or organizations, certainly not the Army. But what's the centerpiece of all of those slogans, of all those catchphrases? It's about me. You see, the advertising companies, the marketers, they know something about us, that we want the world to revolve around ourselves, that we are egocentrically driven in this world. But that's not the way of Christ. Christ teaches us a different way. And here's the thing. Expecting the world to revolve around you is expecting it to operate contrary to its design. See, we were born into someone else's kingdom. We're born into Christ's kingdom, according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. And as a result, we should expect His agenda to dominate our lives. And the only way we can do this is by radically reorienting our lives around Him. Now, what does that mean to reorient something? When you are reorienting something, you're choosing to change the direction it's going. So let's say that, that you needed to go north, but you were headed west. What do you need to do? You need to reorient your direction. You need to change the way you're going so that you can head north. You know, in ancient times, several of the best minds believed that the earth was the center of the universe. It was called the geocentric model of the universe, and people like Aristotle and Ptolemy, they subscribed to it. In fact, the Catholic Church which dominated the Christian world in the 1500s and the 1600s, declared that all other models of the universe were heretical, and they censored those who believed in them, such as Galileo. They even banned books that taught other models. But then along comes the invention of something called the telescope. And it allowed scientists to peer into outer space 
And the celestial evidence they observed disproved the geocentric model and proved a heliocentric model, a model of the universe that orbited around the sun. The disapproval of the geocentric model caused society to reorient its perspective around a new concept. And in like manner, every one of us has to come to realization that the universe doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around its creator. And we might have to radically reorient our lives around theocentrism because we've been stuck in egocentrism for too long. I mean, that's why Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Because he wasn't going to accept an egocentric perspective. And that's what Peter is ultimately calling on Christians to do. To have a strange way of thinking that is centered around God's will rather than our own. So our way of thinking will be strange because it's constructed on an understanding that God is the center of the universe instead of ourselves. But that's not the only way our way of thinking is strange. Our way of thinking is also strange. The Christian's way of thinking is also strange because it believes faith is monotheistic rather than polytheistic. Now, I have to admit something. Finding an image and a background that can convey monotheism versus polytheism is hard. This is the best I could come up with one that's bigger than all the others and one that is mightier than all the others. That's the concept I was going for. So don't think I'm trying to announce that God is, is obese. I'm just trying to convey an idea that God is bigger and stronger and mightier. That God is alone and superior. Now I want you to look, think for a moment about monotheism versus polytheism. To be monotheistic is to believe in a single deity, in one God. To be polytheistic is to believe that there are multiple deities, that there are multiple little g-gods. In the world of the first century, the Greco-Roman culture was very polytheistic. You remember when Paul went to Athens? It's recorded in Acts chapter 17, and he's walking around this amazing city, and he makes this observation Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And we're told in, in, a couple of verses later that he even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So in that day and in that time, society believed in multiple deities. Society accepted multiple deities. The account of Paul's experience in Athens gives us a solid basis for understanding the world in which Peter's readers lived. A world that worshipped more than one God. A world that believed no one's faith system was inferior. And a world that accepted the presence of competing religions. Does that sound familiar to you? Now look at 1 Peter chapter 4 again. And you'll look at verse 3 and 4 and you'll see this list of activities that Christians are not to participate in with unbelievers. And you'll see a, a great number of sinful acts and behaviors and, 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 and conduct. But notice the very last one. The last thing that Peter mentioned was idolatry. Idolatry. Interestingly, as I studied this section of 1 Peter, it was pointed out that contemporary secular writers of Peter 
did not describe religious activities of which they did not approve as idolatry. In other words, other religions were not considered immoral or a violation of a divine mandate in the eyes of the secular authors of Peter's day. Idolatry was not a concept that the Greco-Roman culture believed in. Because to claim that something is idolatrous is to say that it is in contradiction with your own faith system. Not just that it's in contradiction, though, that it is wrong, that it is a sin, that it is condemned. So what I mean is that worshipers of Zeus did not say that worshipers of Athena were committing idolatry. They, in the first century, didn't care who you worship, but they did care whether or not you judged them for who they worshiped. That means that idolatry, the, the, the worship of other deities, was not considered a sin among the, those who adopted polytheism. It's only in the context of the Judeo-Christian tradition, if you will, that, the, that idolatry came into existence. Few in the polytheistic first century cared if Christians wanted to worship somebody named Jesus, but it was highly offensive for Christians to label other religions as idolatrous in the eyes of that culture. So Christians were strange in the first century because they did not tolerate polytheism. Now think about our culture today. One of the key words the world emphasizes when it comes to religion today is tolerance. In the past, tolerance simply meant that you had to accept each individual's freedom to choose to live a different lifestyle or subscribe to a different belief system or adhere to a different set of values. You were considered intolerant if you discriminated against, persecuted, abused, or mistreated someone because they made choices or held beliefs that were different than your own. So you were expected to tolerate people even if you disagree, disagreed with their ideologies. But today, that's not the standard for tolerance anymore. Tolerance has come to mean that you not only must accept a person's right to choose a different ideology, but you also must acknowledge the legitimacy of their choice, of their ideology. In other words, you're considered intolerant if you believe in only one God. Because in making such a monotheistic claim, you are effectually declaring your belief system to be superior to all others. And therefore, you're unloving, you're intolerant. But we're different. The Christian's way of thinking is different because we understand that the monotheistic claims of Scripture cannot coexist with the pluralistic ideals of society. You journey through Scripture and you see God defeat deity after deity. God defeats the gods of Egypt by sending the ten plagues back in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. And God proved that he is greater than Philistine gods by toppling Dagon's temple as well as his statue in the book of Judges and in 1 Samuel. In Yahweh, God proved that he's greater than the Canaanite deities by defeating Baal at a sacrifice duel on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. And then along came the Persian gods, which God defeated when he protected Daniel in the lion's den. When he made Daniel and his friends... I forgot where I was going with that. When he protected Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. See, God repeatedly 
defeated other deities to prove that he's the one true God. And Peter's message for us today is the same as it was in the first century. He said, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, such as living in idolatry. So don't join them in their reckless living. Be different. Be strange. And our way of thinking will be strange because it's constructed on a monotheistic faith rather than a polyistic, polytheistic faith. And as a result, the world will call us intolerant because we're unwilling to validate any belief system that does not hold to the singular divinity of Yahweh. And that's strange. But we're called to be strange. And one final thing about the Christian's way of thinking. The Christian's way of thinking is strange because it believes truth is absolute rather than relative. Absolute truth says that truth is defined by God for everyone. Absolute truth says that truth is objective and unchanging because it adheres to a standard, and that standard is God. God knows what's good and what's evil because he relates it to his own character. See, if, if it's consistent with God's character, then it is good. And if it's inconsistent with his character, then it is evil. In short, God is the moral center of the universe, as one preacher said. And it's a job only he's qualified to do. David referred to him as the God of truth in Psalm chapter 31 and verse 5. That's why Jesus, his son, the one who said that he and God were one, that's why Jesus could say in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He was saying that God is the source of truth. So according to the absolute view of truth, truth is found by looking up to God for the answer. Relative truth says that truth is defined by the individual for the individual. Relative truth says that truth is subjective and situational because it does not adhere to a definitive, stance, a definitive standard. So according to the relativistic, relativistic view of truth. Truth is found by looking within ourselves for the answer. In Peter's day, the polytheistic practices of the Greco-Roman culture led to the rejection of absolute truth. Because if you're going to tolerate the existence of multiple deities, then you of necessity have to reject the existence of absolute truth. So any universal claim to truth was offensive to first century Greco-Roman thought. I want you to notice what Peter says in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter 4. After referencing the fact that unbelievers will find it strange that believers don't participate in those activities with them, he says, they, referring to the unbelievers, the pagans, the Gentiles, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now here, Peter used a mirrorism. Now, a, a mirrorism is a figure of speech in which something is referred to by a conventional or socially popular phrase that points out some of its traits. Yeah, I had to look that definition up. So a mirrorism is, occurs when you, when you use a couple of the attributes of something to define it. And so when someone says, I searched every nook and cranny, they're using a mirrorism that simply means I searched everywhere. Or when a bride and groom vow to take each other for better or worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and in health. They're using a mirrorism that's referring to the fact that no matter what the circumstances are, they're going to hold on to one another. Even the phrase ladies and gentlemen 
is a mirrorism because it's referring to everyone in an audience. And there are multiple mirrorisms in Scripture. For instance, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, when we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, it's a mirrorism. It's a, a figure of speech that is indicating that God has created everything. And so when Peter referred to God as the one who will judge the living and the dead, he's using a mirrorism. He's using a figure of speech that is referencing something by referring to some of its parts. He was saying that God is the one who will judge everyone. And in so doing, Peter indicated that God's authority is universal. It applies to everyone. And therefore, no one escapes God's judgment. And the gospel is true not only for believing Christians, but for all people as well. See, Peter's writing to an audience, or writing to a cult, in a culture that rejected the existence of absolute truth. That did not believe that God would judge everyone, that God applied to everyone, that his standards of truth applied to everyone. And guess what? We live in a culture that rejects the existence of absolute truth as well. We live in a culture that wants truth to be left up to the individual because that's more comfortable. But here's the thing. We don't apply relativism to anything else in life. You don't look at, at the judicial system and say, hey, we want you to operate relativistically. I want to be able to be pulled over by an officer who says, hey, you were going 15 miles over the speed limit and say, well, that may be true to you, but it's not true to me. I was doing the speed limit. We don't say we want relativism to be applied to sporting events. We don't say, hey, that college football team won the national championship. That might be the case for you, but really my team won, even though we were 0-16 or whatever it is. I just gave NFL stats. We don't want relativistic truth in other arenas of life. You know where we really don't want relativistic truth? In the medical field. We don't want a doctor to say, well, by the diagnosis of everyone else, you're going to die, but I say you're going to live because that's what's true to me. No, we want to know the truth. We don't apply relativism to the other aspects of life, but when it comes to spirituality, all of a sudden we want it to be true for me and not true for you. We want it to be relative. It doesn't work that way. Because if everyone's truth is true, then everyone's truth is wrong. I'm reminded of the death of George Washington. Maybe you recall how he died. He died on December 14th of 1799. And the strange thing is that the day before his death, he was fine. But he went out horseback riding, and that night turned cold. And I believe it even started to rain, and he got very wet. And when he came home that night, he started to feel chilled. So his wife contacted their personal physician, who happened to be the chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of Virginia, and their physician came and diagnosed George Washington with what he called inflammatory quinsy. And he prescribed, as many of you know, bloodletting. That involved making cuts on a person's body to let out contaminated blood, which was the, the, the medical thought of the day for curing illnesses like this. And so they let out a pint, but the former president didn't get better. So they let out another pint, and he didn't get better. 
And now here it is years later with the medical experience and expertise that we now have that, that physicians have reviewed his case and determined that George Washington most likely had strep throat. Something that today can be remedied with medication. But they've also determined that strep throat is not what killed him. He died from the loss of blood. He died as a result of decisions made by people who were absolutely sincere in what they believed, but simultaneously they were absolutely wrong. And when you think about relative truth, that's the consequences. You can be absolutely sincere in what you believe and be absolutely wrong at the same time. And so our way of thinking will be strange to the world because it accepts God's word as absolute truth. And on this we cannot waver because Christ himself said in Luke chapter 21 and verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we have to have a strange way of thinking. I think I've told you this story before. It's about a man who went to a city hoping to save that city from God's judgment, and he tried talking to one individual and then to another, but nobody would engage him in conversation. And so he tried carrying a picket sign around the city, hoping to get people's attention, hoping that they would read the message he had written down. And he began shouting loudly, Men and women, repent! What you are doing is going to destroy you. And people began laughing at him. But he kept shouting. And he kept speaking. Finally, one day, a person stopped him and said, Can't you see that what you're doing is useless? And the man said, Yes, I know that. So the person asked, why do you continue doing it then? And the man said, when I arrived in this city, I was convinced that I could change them. But now I continue shouting because I don't want them to change me. The point is, the world may continue to change its way of thinking, but we can never let it change ours. And so we hold fast to a monotheistic faith. We believe in absolute truth, and we live theocentrically. We accept the strange way of thinking because it's the way of thinking that God has called us to possess. This morning, if you look at your life and you realize that something is not right, that your way of thinking is not consistent with the way of thinking that's presented in Scripture, if you look at yourself and realize you're not living theocentrically, you're not living with God at the center of your life, if you look at yourself and realize that you have not committed yourself to Him alone as the God of your life. If you look at yourself and you realize that you haven't applied His Word as the absolute standard for your life, then now's an opportunity to change the way you think. Now's an opportunity to change the way you live. Now's even the opportunity to change your eternity. If you need to make a decision today to become a child of God, to have your sins washed away, to become a member of His body, then now is that opportunity if you will confess your faith that Jesus Christ is His risen Son, if you will repent of your sins, and if you will be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. 
But today you may be here as someone who has made that decision. But the consistency of your life has not been on God. And maybe you've made some decisions that have taken you away from Him. Maybe you haven't lived up to His standard. Maybe you haven't been going around the city proclaiming His will, and instead you've let the world change you. And now it's time to return. I don't know what your need is, but I know that we have this opportunity to make things right with God. And if you need to do that today, won't you come while together we stand and sing? Look.